I remember um, a time where I was, again, it's not spiritual or anything else. I worked overnight and I'm driving home and uh, it was raining out and I was trying to stay awake because I had to drive like a half an hour after working overnight. And um, I fell asleep on the highway. And uh, so someone's in panic, yes. Uh, and uh, I was doing everything. I, it was raining out, so I rolled my window down. It was, it was like late fall, and it was, so it was cold. So I was raining, and I was just doing anything I could do to try to keep myself awake. Well, I fell asleep, uh, and my, I, I drive with one hand, so, so I just kind of did this, and uh, I get off. And where I was going by this, the, the highway happened to curve right there, which was, I suppose, good. And it went by like where this rocks had been carved out. And right after that, uh, and I was on uh, Highway 87 in New York, and I remember this very clearly. And I, I, got, off my, I got off on the exit because right there is where the exit lane widened out, right where I fell asleep. And I crossed over into the, the, and they didn't have all the little bumps right there. And I just kind of woke up as my car was going towards the exit lane. And uh, so I just continued nice and smoothly going around, got off, and I just kind of stood in the rain. Uh, I don't know if that was God trying to wake me up or something, or if it was just me falling asleep. But I, I tell you what I do remember was I remember this incredible alertness. Uh, and that's one of the things that fear does to us is, if you, if you think of a, a time where uh, you were really, really scared, there is one thing that happens physiologically with us is um, we get adrenaline. And adrenaline is there to help you sort out all distractions and think about one thing. Um, it's one of the, the side effects. It's not just, it's just not pure panic. I mean, there's, I, I suppose there is a, a panic aspect to it, but, but, um, but some of that is there for you to focus and, and filter out a lot of distractions uh, because you need that. And, and I think in a spiritual way, God does the same with us. It, the, he, he works sometimes with fear to get us to focus on, on something that we need uh, to be focusing on. Um, he moves on here in, uh, yes, fight or flight. What that was that's called. Um, he moves on and and looks at a different way that um, that God works. Uh, so we have a, a third way, and that is maybe similar to verse sixteen, talking about terror. But um, and, and and I think the the motive there. I want to before we move on. I want to look at the motive. He says to turn men aside from his deeds and conceal pride from a man. So. So he's using this terror to, to get man to focus on the reality of situation and turn away from pride. Uh, verse uh, 18, he works a different way. Um, he keeps man's soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. So, so sometimes uh, God works with us by showing us kindness, by showing us some grace that's not necessary. You know, God, God doesn't have to do these things like waking me up before I hit a, you know, hit a guardrail or whatever. 
and, and sometimes, you know, who knows, maybe God was trying to do something at that point in time. But God does things like this. God does extends generosity. Uh, so there's a, a third way. Then God does something that's almost the opposite. Um, if we look, verse 19, man is also rebuked with pain. So, so, so here we have God showing kindness to people, and then sometimes God does the opposite. God shows uh, himself to people to, to do something in their lives by showing them and saying, you know what, you need, you need some pain today. Um, and God does things appropriately. God, God knows what we need when we need it. So sometimes you need to focus, uh, and God says, here, I'm going to give you something to help you focus. Sometimes people become so attached to comforts and uh, things like that, that that we become no longer thankful for things. And in these moments, God says, okay, I'm going to take some of this away from you for a little while so that you can learn to be appreciative. All right. And in pain, you lose your attachment to things as you focus on what's most important. That's just how uh, right? you think about all these you know, ver- you know, so many stories of people that talk about, a, you know, whether it's at the end of their life when they're going through things and they, they realized what was most important when, you know, throughout their life they th- thought, well, this was most important or that was most important. Or, and the pain might not be personal. Sometimes the pain is losing somebody else and you realize, oh my goodness, this was really important. This, this person was, was so valuable to me and I now, now my time is limited with them. Uh, whatever, whatever the thing is, God says, you need to start appreciating me a little bit more. Uh, and so I'm going to give you this. Um, and we even see that in the story. What we've, we've seen the difference between um, Eliphaz and Job. Eliphaz was describing God's uh, blessing and all he could seem to talk about was wealth and gold and and silver, and and when we come to Job's description of what is important, we see him talking about family and uh, and and honor and integrity and things like that. And Job kind of has a healthier perspective on what's important, and I think it's largely because of the pain that he's going through. And one more way, there's one more way here that he mentions. I'm not saying that this is all the ways, but this is all that Elihu uh, references. <clears throat> Uh, as he, he goes down and through and has a pretty lengthy description of pain and how God works with pain, but we're just kind of going a little bit uh, quicker, uh, not describing everything to do with that. He says, uh, uh, he talks about in verse 23, an angel, or that again, we talked about that being a messenger of some sort, a mediator. Uh, so, and, and, It's important. There are a couple of things about people. Sometimes God just sends people into our lives. They might already be in our lives, but but sends them uh, to uh, to kind of help us through things. In other words, God hasn't. Now, and I think at this point, um, he throughout these 
speeches, even though they're to Job, there, there are little comments that I think are addressed to Job's friends uh, here. So what does he note about messengers? Well, he, he describes messengers here. Um, what are the things that are beginning in, in uh, verse 23? What does he note about them? Is there anything that sticks out at you as, as being opposite to, to these friends? The first thing that draws my attention, okay, so it's the audience, they're sent to the upright. Um, I think sometimes, I mean, there are times where God, I think, sends messages to people who he knows won't hear it. Uh, but like, like we've talked about and, and we repeated today that, um, that God does seem to work with the people more who are appreciative of it and who have a tendency to take it. Um, I think that's that's for sure. Uh, but these messengers, I notice, <clears throat> um, he says they're one in a thousand. Uh, and I don't think if we're looking at the one in a thousand, I don't think these three men made the cut. Um, I, I think, I don't know if that was intended that way. Oh, you know, I don't know if they caught that message or if I'm just reading into it, but it, it kind of seems like he might be sarcastically giving kind of like some side eye to these three guys. Um, but he says uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, that, that he sends him one in a thousand to declare what is right for him. But I think verse 24 gives us a little bit more about the character of these messengers that was also missing. And it says that they are merciful to him. So I, I think this is one of those times where he's talking to Joe, but he's really talking to these other three guys. God sends these messengers, and they're very rare, uh, but they come when, when people need things in, in this situation of physical pain or terror or whatever, and they bring mercy. And that was one of, that was really, it was Job's chief complaint about these three guys. He might have been more willing to listen had they brought mercy, but they did not bring any mercy, they only bring judgment. Um, and what is the result? Right? The result then, uh, as we look at Elihu describes the proper response. What is the proper response? Beginning in verse 26. There are multiple things that, that God expects in a proper response to all of these ways. God, God goes out of his way and he says, here's all of these different ways. I'm going to help you. Uh, I'm going to use dreams. I might use a, a really a, a kind thing that, that comes out of nowhere or some blessing. I might use fear. Uh, I might use pain. I might use a messenger, just a, a person to come and, and, and talk and bring mercy. But restoration uh, really describes, um, I think, the, the responses that, that God wants. Um, and, and it's shown in several ways. 
the first thing it, it mentions that he prays to God. So first of all, he goes directly back to God. And, and through all these things, um, the intent is to draw us to God. And uh, I think that then there's the response, I guess, of God. Maybe it's not all about our response, but, but then there's the, the counter response, which is acceptance. Right? So, so there's this, this praying to God and, and repenting of things. Um, I've perverted what was right. Uh, I've done wrong. But it's important. He restores man and his righteousness. But then there's this other thing. He sings in front of men. Another, there's a public, a part of our response to God. It should be a public acknowledgement of the things God has done. You know, we call these testimonies. Right? People, people give them all the time. I, I was in this situation and this happened. And, and we praise God for, uh, for things. And if you look at Job's life, Job did this at the beginning, right? He gets all this news, and the first thing he does is he goes and worships. All right, That's the first thing he does is worship God. Um, and he kind of lost that way uh, throughout the process. The first thing he does not do is justify himself. Now, justification, um, we're going to get to justification in just a second. Um, throughout here, um, we talk about restoration of man, but the, God has a lot of motives in here. Uh, look at some of these motives here towards the end throughout these. Verses. What are the things that, that God wants from me? I mean, I know we, restoration kind of covers the whole thing. I want to look at some of the specific ones because they're, they're interesting, because they, they really tell us a little bit of what we should be looking for and how God speaks to us and, and what God's doing. What does he want for me? kind of this last section of verses in this chapter, really go through all these things. That <clears throat> First of all, he looked, if you look at verse 28, uh, he says to, um, God wants us to be in the light. Uh, for man to live within light, and all that, that entails is really to, to be... Um, when we talk about being enlightened, or when we use those that symbolism all the time, it has to do with um, walking it within the approved path. Right? That's the the first thing to walk in the light. He talks about uh, bringing his soul from the pit, and I think he's referencing man's safety. A spiritual safety, not just physical safety. Um, so, uh, new, the things that God does, so, so often, right, how do we look at, or it's easy to look at when we're growing up. Don't, don't even think about it as God. How did you look 
at your parents when you were 14, 15, 16, 17. They were restrictive. They were overly restrictive. And, and that might be true. I can think of, of things that are like, I still think, why, why was that rule in place? You know, or going off to college. I was in college, it's like, I'm a man now. And then some of the restrictions, it's like, why this restriction? These don't make sense. And there were, there was legitimate restrictions. Now God's not a bad maker of rules, but we look at so many times, we look at the restrictions as though they're there to uh, keep me from enjoying something. When really, they're there, they're designed to keep me from the pit, right? They're, they're designed, why don't you do this? Because it's not healthy for you to do this. I'm, I'm keeping your soul from the grave. That's what I'm, I'm trying to do here with this rule. And, and God does that. God's, a lot of this is to keep us from not just death, which is, I think, important for God, uh, but spiritual death as well. Um, so that's uh, the idea of being both physically and spiritually safe, uh, go into this restoration. Um, God wants uh, repentance, and we've talked about that. But there's uh, a couple of more um, verse 33, he talks about wisdom that goes into that enlightenment that we talk about. God wants us to, to just to be wiser, to come through situations. And even if we did not come through them with flying colors, Job does not come through this with flying colors. He started out really good. Right? We notice all the good things the final analysis, Elihu doesn't have a lot good to say about Job. And God has less good to say about Job at the end. But what's the net result? That result is that Job is a far wiser person um, at the end of it. So, so it's not just the summation of, well, you, you passed or you failed the test. Right? I've failed a lot of tests in life, um, in school, and, uh, and end up knowing more for the failing of the test. Um, yes, okay, there's the final grade, and a lot of people only look so far as the final grade. Well, that didn't help my GPA. Not that I had to worry about a GPA. But you can take a failed test and learn a lot from a failed test and come away with what the test was there and what the class was there intended to do, which was to give you the knowledge. And that's the important part. So wisdom um, and, um, and I think to, to go back and talk about the light of life, I think another aspect of that, other than just being right, is to, uh, to be, to, talk about the quality of life, right? And I think joy in life is, is one of the things. And I, I think Job was going to have difficulty even after being restored. For a little while, it, it's hard to have joy. He's going to look back sadly on certain events in his life, right? Um, you know, the bittersweet memories of, of kids, and the, those are going to be hard. Those, that's never going to get easy for Job, uh, but you can still, if we draw the line between uh, happiness and joy, 
uh, and, and that having a different perspective on things um, can still bring joy into a person's life. I want to look at the end of this chapter and then go into the next chapter here. Um, and there's a, a little bit of an interlude. Uh, and I think the interlude is, itself is important. Uh, verse uh, 31 of this chapter through 34, verse 4, he says, um, Pay attention, Job. Listen to me. Be silent. I will speak. If you have words, then answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, then listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Uh, then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tests food. Let us choose what is right, and let us know among ourselves what is good. And then he's going to summarize Job's position again. And, um, and go through it. But this interlude is important. He addresses both groups in this. He addresses Job. And I think what he's doing here, he's, he sets up an orderly conversation. Right? Notice that he allows Job to speak. He says, if you have any words, Job, answer me. Um, and in that is a difference between Job's acquaintances and Elihu. Now, what are the specific differences, if you think about it? just just look just as we read that? What what stands out to you as different between Elihu and the other three? What's different? Okay, the attitude of humility. Um, and again, maybe that's just because of age, um, or maybe it's because of his character. Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily merely an age thing, uh, because um, I've met plenty of older people who spoke with humility, even towards younger people. So, so it's not necessarily merely an age thing. Um, but it is an attitude thing. He spoke with deference. He spoke with respect where they, uh, uh, they condescended. The other men condescended and they, uh, they accused. They were very free to, to draw conclusions on horrible advice. Right? Uh, so so there's a, there is a respect uh, towards Job. Um, and I think that says not just a lot about their attitudes towards Job, just it says a lot about how they held themselves. So that's, that's one difference that I notice. Um, anything else that you might, just in the structure uh, of this, I think what's expected, um, what Elihu expects in terms of a response, he doesn't expect anything. Right? 
to me, he's a, he says, if you have any words, answer me. So he has no, when a person says it, that's an open-ended thing. He has, uh, he's, in other words, I'm, I'm, letting, I'm letting this conversation go whichever way you want to take it, in, in a sense. Uh, however you want to address, I don't have any preconceived ideas of things that you're going to say, whereas Job's friends had an expected response. His response was to admit that they were right. That was the only response that they were going to accept. Um, and that was the only time they paused their speech ever was in the expectation that they had find, that, that Job had finally seen the light and now is going to admit that they're right. Uh, so so I, I, I noticed that. And, and so theirs is not going to produce a... Um, proper response, even if, if it was deserved, uh, it's, it's not going to be productive. But Elihu's is. And you'll notice, what is Job's response? He's got nothing to say. It's interesting. The one guy that, that offers plenty of response, and he keeps on doing this throughout the whole speech, he keeps on saying, yeah, anything to say at this point, anything to say at this point. And Job never has really anything to say. The guys who wouldn't let him speak, he had plenty of response for those guys. Um, so, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, he keeps on going through this, and he says a little piece and says, what now? Uh, anything now? Let's make sure. And throughout this whole conversation, he's making sure. Uh, <laughs> he might have been exasperated, I, I think. Uh, but I, I think there's something refreshing. Um, I, I, I think that this this conversation might have been refreshing. Uh, this might be a conversation where you have it and you finally realize you're in the presence of somebody that you could actually learn from. And you go, okay, now this is somebody I can learn from. I can't learn anything from these three guys. That's why I'm arguing with them. But, but now I, here's somebody that I can have a conversation. And Elihu being correct is structuring it so that there's really not an argument to be made back. Uh, he doesn't have, he's not... Uh, He's not judging. He's not. He's he's saying you said this, right? Yes, I said this. Okay, there's, there's no argument to be made. Um, so we look at. I want to look at Elihu's stated intention here. Uh, Elihu has a couple of um, things we talked. One to teach wisdom. That's one thing for for Job. He wants him to be wiser. We mentioned that, but. <clears throat> What does, this is interesting, what does he desire to do? What does Elihu wish to do? He states one goal that's very important for Job. Verse 32, oh, he wants Job to understand, but, um, and they want to learn together, but his desire, in verse 32, he says, I desire to justify you. In other words, he's letting, he's letting Job know, I'm on your side in this. I'm not your opposition. We don't have to get extreme and far away from each other. We can come together. That was the problem with, with all of these, the, these arguments 
Job would make a statement, then the guys would make a statement, and they kept getting further and further apart. He's doing this thing. We're going to try to not get extreme. I desire to justify you. I'm actually trying to help you out. And and, And that was what Job had wanted. He wanted to be justified. That was his, was like, I'm, I don't feel wrong. And so Elihu says, I want to justify you. Well, that sounds to me like somebody who's trying to accomplish. So often we do that with people around us is, is we view them as wrong and they might be wrong, but we view them as wrong and our communications to them can become Uh, perceived as wanting them to end up with the perception that we're not on their side. We might not intend that, but we can communicate things in a way that make them think that. And so it's important for him to state things so that he's trying to accomplish the end result of what Job wants, which is justification. But he's got some stated goals in chapter 34 for Job's friends. He's not, he's throughout these speeches, though he's aimed primarily at Job, he's not forgetting these. He throws a little side comment here, but then he says, um, hear my words, you wise men. Again, was that sarcastic? Or is it in respect? I don't know. He says, pay attention to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tests food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. Uh, so, uh, for Job's friends, I think he wants them to be humbled. Right? I, I think he's using these statements either strategically uh, to try to show humility, uh, to get them on his side, or to to throw a little jab, like you, you guys are so smart. Um, so, so let us, let us be smart then together. Um, but he wants them to learn how to proper He says the ear test word as the palate test food. And I think he wants them to learn through this process, how to properly evaluate statements. They're not a total lost cause either. Uh, So I think God, while he's primarily working with Job, can work with these guys too. Uh, And I'm not sure how, we're definitely not going to get to the rest of of this um, today, but I want to get through some of this setup. Um, So so there's a little bit for for both of them. Uh, And so I want to read verse 5 through 9 and see if we can get through just a little bit of it here. Job has said, so he introduces Job's position. Job has said, I'm in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted as a liar, for my wound is incurable, though I'm without transgression. What man is like Job? Now remember, he's speaking now, it's almost, he's speaking about Job right in front of him to these men. What man is like Job who drinks up scoffing like water? who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men. For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Now, we should understand that Job has not, in this section, now prior to this, Elihu has quoted Job directly. Um, 
and here he's um, he's summarizing. But it's not going to be a mischaracterization of Job. He's saying the end result, sometimes when you say something, you don't intend it to mean something, but the substance of what you're saying is, when you say this, this is the implications of what you're saying. And I think that's kind of uh, what, what he's going through here. Um, when the implication of the statement that God punishes me, though I am without transgression, that's a summary of, uh, of, of earlier parts of, this, of, of Job's speeches. So let's break this down, and he's, he's going to break this down. What, what is the implication of saying that? Um, well, the first thing, Job was giving credit for God, right? We started from that. Everyone was trying to credit God with something. So on one hand, Job is crediting or on the other hand, he's saying, I didn't deserve it. So God did it, but I didn't deserve it. And so the only natural result is, well, then God is unjust. At least, at least the, the three friends weren't making that. The implications of their statement wasn't pointing to God being unjust, right? So, uh, so, so there, Job's implications of his statements are, are, are significantly more serious. Uh, now, we should look at something here very briefly, is that Elihu, or excuse me, Eliphaz had similarly accused him of this uh, keeping company well, you're, you're, it's like you're keeping company with, with evil men. And, and that was in chapter 22, verse 15 through 17. And we said, well, that wasn't right for Eliphaz to do. Why is it right for Eliphaz, or excuse me, why is it wrong for Eliphaz to do this? And then for Elihu to make a similar statement here, because he says uh, he travels with company with evildoers and walks with wicked men. And Job 34, 8, they're very similar statements. And I think... Um, we should understand that, that Eliphaz's statements were a part of accusations of guilt. In other words, he was, he was trying to say that Job was wrong using the logical fallacy of what we would call guilt by association. That was really what was a part of all of that. That's not what Elihu is doing. Elihu, is, as we said, that he's trying to justify, and he's just trying to summarize the position and not make any more character statements beyond that, and that is the difference between the two. Um, so uh, we're going to get into uh, a little bit more of, of this situation and looking at this uh, next week, so, but we're, we're out of time uh, for now. So.